If we haven't met before, my name is uh, James. I'm here on staff uh, at the church. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Proverbs chapter uh, 6, as that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, now, I've noticed that families can have interesting relationships with words, and, and families have different relationships with the same word. Um, I don't know how we got onto this conversation, but back in college, um, one of the guys I, I was going with, he, he told me that in his home, they were not allowed to use the word fart. Um, and I don't think I've said that in a sermon ever, that word, um, kind of weird to say it, um, but it was off limits. They weren't allowed to say that. Instead, when somebody passed gas, when they had flatulence, they had to use the word sparkled. Um, and so somebody would be like, what's that smell? And somebody would be like, pardon me, I sparkled. I had too much dairy. Um, and it, it sounds much more magical that way, at least. But it's like, man, that's a weird relationship with, with kind of a word. Now, another word that I've noticed families have kind of an interesting relationship with or different feelings towards is the word hate. Now, some of us, we, we can have a casual relationship with the word hate. Um, I... I I probably fall into this category. I'll be driving down the highway and uh, somebody will be driving slowly. I'm just like, I hate when people don't do the speed limit, especially when they're in the left-hand lane and I can't get past them. Now, God is still working on my sanctification in the area of, of driving. I've got, I've got some development to do there. But like maybe you've said things like this. I hate long lines. I hate lying. Maybe you've said, I hate my ex. I hate snakes. I hate mouth breathers. I hate people who interrupt. I hate inflation. I hate gas prices. I hate grocery prices. I mean, we could keep going. And we, we can use that word casually. Um, but in reality, when we use it that way, we're kind of going, I'm annoyed. I'm frustrated by those things. Anger, annoyance, frustration, those are short-lived. They're situational, whereas hate tends to be more enduring, and it's, it's deeply ingrained. And so maybe you grew up in a family where it's like the word hate was just completely off-limits. You weren't allowed to use it, and maybe if you said to your sibling, I hate you, your parents reacted strongly. They, they just had no tolerance for that. Now, hate, by definition, is a strong and intense feeling of hostility, animosity, or deep detestation towards someone or something. And so hate goes beyond apathy. It goes beyond disgust. And, and often the reason we, we, people might have a, a, a dislike for that word and it's so strong is because we don't use hate in a great way. Often we associate hate with some pretty terrible things. We, we hear of hate crimes based on ethnicity, um, gender, religion. We, we could get, keep going. And when we commit these crimes or we do things out of hate, we often don't do them well. It's, it's, we go too far. And so as human beings, we don't hate well. And so we might kind of think of hate as being something that's entirely negative. Now, as I said, we're in Proverbs chapter 6 today, and as you're scrolling through there, you might come across this title that says, What the Lord Hates, or God Hates. And we, we might find that surprising, but Scripture tells us God actually does hate certain things. And so Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16 and following, if you have your Bible. 
Solomon, who, who wrote this, he said, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Now, this, this is a list. Here's six things God hates. and they say, Actually, no, it's seven. God, God detests seven. And we might go, okay, Solomon, make up your mind. Like, what is it, six, seven? Are you receiving mixed signals from God as to what he hates? But scholars are kind of going, actually, by adding kind of that seventh, it's going, okay, the list might not actually be complete. And it's not exhaustive. Others are going, no, by, by putting seven there, it's just kind of adding weight to that final figure. Now, regardless of what it is, here's what Psalm is saying. Here are the things that God hates. And the first one is this, God hates arrogant eyes. Like, we know that you, you can tell a lot about a person or what they're thinking by looking in their eyes and how they look towards others or other things. And, and Scripture has this idea that, that, that the eyes are the window to the soul. And so arrogant eyes are those eyes that look down on other people. Arrogant eyes reflect a proud heart. And God hates pride. Because people with pride, they, they kind of go about life and they try and make their own way by being a law unto themselves. They don't like this idea that I live in, in submission to God and I live in submission to the authorities that God has put in place to be over me. And so arrogant people, they tend to be ruthless with others and do their own thing without regard of the consequences that it could have on other people. And so, like, uh, arrogant people, they're, they're the types of people that drives me crazy going to the grocery store, and these people are parked in the fire lane. And it's like, oh, I'm just running in for a moment. And I, like, I go in, I get my three or four items, I'm walking out, they're still parked there. I'm like, man, that takes some arrogance just to block the fire lane. Like, it's like, why, why do you get to do that? There's something in your mind going like, well, I, I have a right to do this. I'll get off my, my stool, that's just a pet peeve. But God hates the way an arrogant or prideful person looks down on other people. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we're, we're told, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So here's the principle, and I'm going to give you a principle behind all of these things that God says he hates. It's this, God hates when we see others as less valuable than ourselves. Solomon goes on to say, God hates a lying tongue. And so Greg covered this last week, that, that God loves truth and so he hates lies. Now when God is bringing the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt, he's bringing them towards the promised land, he's going to form them into his people and he gives them what's called the law. And kind of to kind of the crowning thing in this law is the Ten Commandments. And on those Ten Commandments, one of those commands is this, thou shalt not lie. And so there's nothing about God, nothing about lying that God likes. He doesn't kind of lay out some parameters in scripture, go, okay, here's when a white lie is okay. He doesn't say, Here, here's a situation where you can, can bend the truth. And so we see that God is all about truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Titus 1, 2, it says God cannot lie, or some translations might say it's impossible for God to lie. And so, like, can God lie? No, he can't because it's against his character. It's against his very nature and being. And so he's a God of truth and he speaks truth, and so he wants us to be true and to speak the truth. 
And so lying opposes who God is, what he does, and what he loves. And so what he's saying is God hates when we make the effort to verbally deceive others. Solomon says this, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And so God is a just God, and so he hates when innocent people are mistreated. He, he, he hates to see innocent people suffer. Now, once again, this, this one makes it into the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And so what, what God is saying there is you're not to intentionally or maliciously take another human being's life. Well, why? Because God hates murder because he created life. He's the author of life. And he said life is sacred. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and this is a verse like, listen up, because we're going to keep referring back to this one throughout. So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. And so because of this verse, we go, every human being has value and worth. Male, female, value and worth. Why? Because God created them. They bear his image. And he says that you have value, you have worth. And some of us actually like, need to take that to heart. And God looks at you and he says, you have value and you have worth. Because we not, we're not necessarily believing that about ourselves. Now, most of us will go, okay, I'm safe on this one. Do not shed innocent blood until Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5. And he goes, have you ever been angry towards somebody in your heart? Have you ever harbored bitterness towards somebody in your heart? Um, had, had anger or contempt? Well, he says that's akin to the sin of murder in its seriousness. And it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Like, I, I don't even get away with do not murder. Now, we're, we're going to go somewhere with this. Um, so just, just listen up. Um, maybe you've been reading through the Old Testament. You just crack open your Bible. You're going through the book of Exodus and, and following. And you find some stuff that is just kind of weird and confusing to you. It doesn't seem to make sense. Like God says to the Israelite people, you're going to go into the promised land and there's people living there. And when you go in there, like don't leave anybody alive. Take no hostages. Wipe them all out. And we, we struggle with that because like God's a God of love. That's, that, that doesn't seem too loving for God to do this. And we, we can't make sense of it because it seems like God is telling the Israelites like these innocent people are living in the land, minding their own business. And then God's like, okay, send in the Israelites. And they're like pirates who come in and steal and kill and plunder. It, it's, it's hard to kind of reconcile. But the problem is these people aren't nearly as innocent as we might believe that they are. Like the, the Canaanites, for example, the people who lived in the land, they worshiped a God named Moloch. And Moloch had people do some pretty terrible things in, in regards to worshiping him. But one of the things that he had the people do was take their children and pass them through the fire. It was, it was burn your children alive as a sacrifice to him so that good things would come their way. And so God is, is, is setting Israel out. He's like, you're going to be my people in the world. You're going to represent me and the nations are going to be blessed through you. But I got to make sure none of these things like child sacrifice 
take root in you as a people. Like they're still highly impressionable at this time. So God's like, we're, we're, that's not going to have a part in my in worship of me in, in Israel's life. Because why? Life is sacred. Now, I think most of us would agree with this. It's like, it's not a really good idea to take your children and pass them through the fire. It's not something we're looking to add to our worship practices here at Halifax Christian Church. Again, it's, it's God says life is sacred. Now, what we're going to talk about here for the next little bit, it's, I know it's not going to be popular with everybody. Um, some people are going to say you went too hard. And some people are going to tell me I didn't go hard enough. Uh, but I want to talk for a few minutes about the practice of abortion. And I know it's going to get uncomfortable, but we're going to be okay. Um, and I also want to say this. The church is a family. I disagree with my brother about a lot of things, but I still love him, and I can treat him with respect. And so that's what I'm asking. Like You might disagree with kind of where I'm coming from on this, um, but I'm asking love and respect. Um, now, I know many of the arguments um, against kind of Christianity's traditional view surrounding abortion, and it, they kind of come from the realm of women's rights and social justice. And often the church is labeled as anti those things. But the reality is, is that those things would never come about if Christianity really wasn't there, was, was absent. Because Christianity came along and said, no, every human being, male and female, has value and worth. And so that's, it was in that environment that these conversations could begin to take place. I also will say this, I understand that not every situation in, with this is in regards to like a wild night out, a one night stand, and somebody finds out they're pregnant. There's often complex ethical um, situations to consider and people will find themselves in situations that I would never wish upon anybody. Like years ago, my wife Shannon and I, we discovered we were pregnant and she has Crohn's disease. And so we had to go down to the Grace Maternity IWK because she has to be closely followed because with Crohn's disease, she's, she's high risk pregnancy. And so we are meeting with one of the doctors there and he's running down kind of her file and he comes to this medication and it just gets serious. It gets heavy. And he goes, I have to let you know that um, when, when babies are conceived, when somebody's on this medication, that there's a high risk of birth defects, um, just health problems, and, and just like high, high chance. It was, I think it was in the 90s, and just kind of run through this list. And it was like just this heavy, heavy time going like, here's what life's gonna be like for the child if, if, if they make it. Here's what life might look like for you type thing. And it's run through our heads. And then he said, you do have the option to terminate the pregnancy if, if you want. Now, Shan and I, out of kind of our beliefs, our principles, that's just not something we were going to do. But I would be lying if I said I, I didn't think about it a little bit because of what it would mean for the child and for us. I, I, would, I would be lying. And so I, I tell this story for this reason. I understand it can be complex and there's a lot that can be going on. But the reality is that in our time, we've often decided selfishly often that a child might be too much of an inconvenience or that somebody's life is more valuable than the life of the child. And we dispose of children in some pretty heinous ways. We end an unborn child's life in a way that we would consider too cruel to do for a convicted murderer. 
And we try and soothe our consciences by saying, you know what, it's just cells, or it's 100% effective, or the baby doesn't feel any pain, or it's not actually a baby until this amount of time, or, and getting to the point where until, until, until the child's actually born, when, when do we consider this human? And so we need to consider the value that God places on human life in regards to the practice of abortion. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, a Christian theologian, um, kind of a cool fact, not relevant to this, but he was actually involved in a plot that was to take Hitler out of power. He got discovered, got put in a concentration camp and ended up giving his life for that. But, but he writes this, to raise the question whether we are here concerned already with a human being or not is merely to confuse the issue. The simple fact is that God certainly intended to create a human being and that this nascent human being has been deliberately deprived of his life. And that is nothing but murder. It's like, I, I won't lie. There was part of me that was like, I don't even want to go here this morning. But I think as, as a culture, we do need to talk about this. And I don't share this to guilt anybody, to bring shame. I believe that there's grace and forgiveness and mercy offered through Christ for all of us. And we all need it. But I also think that we need to consider this. A child in the womb is about as innocent as human blood gets, and we're extinguishing life that God created and intended, and we got to stop treating it so casually as a culture. To see stand-up comics get up and joke about ending lives after a one-night stand, there's something not right there. And it's a big conversation that's bigger than we're going to have this morning, and I just want to say this, that if you should ever find yourself in this, this spot, there's a great ministry within our city called Open Door Ministry Center, and they're there with resources and support. And so, again, this is not just about abortion, but as our, in our cultural moment, I think we need to talk about it. But the principle is this. God hates when we don't treat life as something sacred. All right, let's keep going. Solomon says, God hates a heart that plots wicked schemes. And so you, you've been created in God's image, which means that you have the ability to plan and create. And so God created your mind to imagine good things, and he gives you an intricate and an amazing mind to think about and plan good things. And he wants to see you use your mind to, to discover him, to know him, to glorify him. But when we take and use our minds to imagine and do evil things, it's a misuse of God's handiwork. And so God doesn't want to see us like take our minds and go like, ah, how can we do something evil or terrible? He, he doesn't want that. And the principle is this, that God hates hearts that are passionate about finding new ways to sin against him. Psalm keeps going. He says, God hates feet eager to run to evil. And so the person who's thinking about evil schemes and imagining them, when they get the opportunity to commit them, they'll probably run into committing it. That, that our actions often come from our inward lives and what's going on. Um, and so th this is a person who's itching to do evil things. Like I'm a World War II geek. I, I like to read about it, watch those movies, um, all that. And one of the things, though, I, I encounter is like you, you find things like something like the Holocaust, and you go, like, that wasn't an accident. That was, like, well-planned, well-detailed, premeditated. Or some, like, Nazi scientists where, like, they, um, they just, like, experiment on live human beings and committing atrocious things to twins going, what can we learn? 
Or maybe you, you watch like that Netflix um, documentary, it's like to, to catch a killer or something, whatever, or whatever it was. And you're like, how do people do these awful things? And the reason that is, is because like they've probably practiced it over in their mind. And they got the opportunity to do it. They showed no restraint, no effort to fight the temptation. And when they saw the opportunity for evil, they ran towards it. And so this is about moral reflexes, a quickness and eagerness to do what is wrong, regardless of the harm it may cause. So it's this, God hates when we run towards sin intentionally. The next one is God hates a false witness. And so this is kind of similar to the one we did earlier, but the, the false witness could be in regards to legal matters. It could be in regards to religious matters where they're testifying false prophecy about God. And so a witness in legal proceedings, what happens is if they lie, an innocent person doesn't get justice. If they lie, a guilty person gets away with their crime. And so... God hates when somebody lies as a witness, whether it's in regard to legal proceedings or matters of faith. Why? Because they're encouraging people to make decisions, major decisions, on lies and deception. And so this is what Satan does to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's like, he comes to Eve. Did God really say? Gets, gets her to doubt God. And what happens? Sin enters into creation and humans rebel against God. So the principle is this, God hates when we influence people's perception of others in ways that discredit him. The final thing Solomon says is this, God hates when people stir up trouble. And the previous one pours into this, that through slander, this person creates distrust that culminates in division and conflict. Like we all have somebody in our life that probably likes a little bit of drama. They like when things are a little tense and, and people are at each other and they might try to create it. They try and get people upset. They try to get people involved so it gets more intense. God doesn't like that. Jesus doesn't say in the Sermon Mount, blessed are those who create conflict. He says, blessed are those peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so God hates when somebody intentionally creates anger and bitterness and resentment and strife and hatred. And so there's no reason for sowing discord and um, conflict that God's cool with, whether it's in regards to family or money or politics or doctrine or romance. Like, think about this. God had the opportunity to take the biggest conflict in the universe, our rebellion against him, and to kind of blow it up and make a big deal about it. But what does God do instead? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, and he makes peace with us through his son's blood. And so it shouldn't be a shock to us that God hates when people spread conflict amongst groups like family, friends, churches. And so God hates when we enjoy creating disagreements and carelessly hurting others. And so th these are the things. Solomon's like, God hates these things. Now, here's what I would say. We should be on guard against sin of any kind. And just because kind of your sin of preference doesn't appear on this list, it's not like, okay, God's cool with that one. He's cool with my greed. He's cool with my gluttony. He's cool with my um, addiction. He's cool with whatever it is. That does not mean it. We need to be on guard against sin of any kind, but someone's going, no, these are the ones that God in particularly, in particular uh, detests. Now, the scary thing is this list, like any of us are capable of these sins. We have it in us to do what God hates. Now, again, go back to Genesis, kind of our defining narrative. And we see that, that God created us to discover him, to enjoy him, to glorify him forever. We were created in God's image, which means you are to image God in creation, his character, his nature, so that others can flourish and thrive. 
And so in order to do this, God gives you your body so that you can serve him. But when we use our bodies for sin, we fail to fulfill the purposes that we were created for. And God hates sin because God loves what is good. And God created you and gave you your body to do what is good. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so the, the, list, the, the, the list of sins here includes body parts, eyes, tongue, hands, heart, feet. And so it's saying like these, you can use your body to hurt others. And then to sin in these ways is to use our body in the wrong purposes. And when we sin against others, we destroy and we deface someone who God created and loves. We devalue his creative work. Now, why does God hate these sins in particular? Why do these ones make this list? Here's what I, th I think it would be, and scholars would say this. It's like, these aren't sins of weakness in which it's an unexpected temptation by which you're overcome, but they're, they're premeditated. They're intentional. You plan them. Like, so think of it this way. Streakers at a sports game, we're going somewhere with this illustration. Um, they, if you're going like, what's a streaker? It's somebody who's naked on the field, running around, trying to get away from security and just draw attention to themselves. That doesn't happen by accident. Like somebody's not like coming down the stairs, back to their seat from the washroom. They trip on the way down. Their clothes all fall off. They find themselves on the field and they're going like, listen, you don't understand. This was an accident. That's why I'm naked. My clothes fell off. Like, it's, it's premeditated. They're like, hey, guys, watch this. They pull off their clothes, they jump on the field, and they run around. It, it takes intentionality. It's not an accident. And so the sins on this list are not ones that a person, like, accidentally does. They take intentionality. You have to go out of your way, put in effort to commit them. Now, parents have a jealous love for their kids. And if, if kind of your, your child's well-being is threatened, that's like when mama bear comes out and, and you defend your child because you want to see what's good for them. You want to protect them from what might cause them harm because you're jealous for their, their happiness, their, their success, their well-being. Now, God is a jealous God. And God's love is angered by anything that defaces or destroys someone he loves. And you are loved by God. So God hates sin because God loves us. Now, I said any of us are capable of these sins, but the reality is that most of us are probably guilty of these sins in one way or another. But with sin, in the name of love, or at least not being labeled as hateful, we'll often ignore sin in somebody's life. And we won't say anything about it, even though we see the sin might be destroying somebody. But God doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't just look the other way. We follow a God who starts this difficult conversation with us about our sin. And he calls out our sin. And then he calls us out of sin. Like only Jesus Christ lived that perfect life. That, that, that life without sin. Embodied all that God is. All that God wants. But yet Jesus Christ ends up on the cross dying a sinner's death. And he dies a death that he does not owe. But God had a plan. He took Jesus' death on the cross and he points to us sinners and he goes, you owe a death, but a death has been paid. And if you want to accept that death on your behalf, I will credit it to your account. He'll pay for your sin and you can be declared righteous. And that's the offer of the gospel. 
And if, if that's something you've never accepted, you've never done, you can do that today. You can speak to me, speak to, to Pastor Greg afterwards. But God doesn't stop there and go, like, God, you're forgiven. He gives you a gift, the Holy Spirit, who sanctifies us, who turns us from people who do what God hates, who do what God loves. Now, when we establish a relationship with somebody, we get to know them. In getting to know the person that we claim to love, we, we get to know a lot about them. And so we go, here's what they like and here's what they don't like. Here's what they love and here's what they don't love. Like, I like spicy food. Um, now, I said in the first service, I don't know if I like it as much as some of you Nigerians because sometimes you guys have given me food. I'm like, that hurts. That's not delightful. Um, that's a little too much. I mean, maybe really, you're a wimp. Um, probably true. But consider, like, when I compare myself to my wife, it's like, man, I'm tough when it comes to spicy food because she's like, is that ketchup? Woo, that's too much. Um, throw, that was a lot of table pepper in there, wasn't it? Um, and so when I'm cooking, I don't put spices in our food, like a, a lot of hot spices, because I know she doesn't like it. I've learned that over the years. And it's the same. If you establish a relationship with somebody, maybe um, a friend or whatever, it's just like a, a partner, whatever. You go, they're like, if they start to eat healthy and they're going like, eating healthy is important to me, you might start to do the same to support them. If your spouse is like, man, I want to get in better shape, so I'm going to exercise more. You might go along on that journey, or at least you help them in that pursuit, because that's important to them. And so if we care about a person and we value them, we, we avoid doing the things that they hate, and we pursue the things that they love. And so Christians, has that translated to your relationship with God? And we can see what God loves based on what he hates. God loves when we live in humility with others. God loves when we speak truth. God loves when we treat life as sacred. God loves when we seek to please him. God loves when we run towards doing what is right. God loves when we lift others up with our words. And God loves when we love each other well. Do you want a kind of a simple test to know kind of what the state of your love for God is? Like, where is it at? Is it, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it stale? Is it, is it progressing? Answer this question. Do you work hard to avoid the things that God hates and to pursue the things that he loves? It's not just enough for us to kind of hate the idea of these sins or hate seeing them in other people. We need to learn to hate these things in ourselves. Are we putting in the effort to hate what God hates and to love what God loves? We should learn to recognize these inward sins before they give birth to action because what's on the inside comes out. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 35, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. So if you want to gain control of your battle with sin, you need to start with your heart. And how do we do this? We learn to make God our greatest affection. We learn to love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength.